This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 98. And the quote of the day is from the Dalai Lama who said, If you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito in the room. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And this session is brought to you by Boso Bamboo Drumsticks, the world's first full line of bamboo drumsticks. Check them out at bosodrumsticks.com and use the promo code PODCAST, and that'll save you 15% off your entire order. So definitely check them out. The interview that I have today is with the one and only Rodney Holmes, and I'm really excited about it. It took me a long time to uh, to get this interview lined up, so I'm really, really excited about it. Rodney, of course, known for his work with Santana, has also worked with Steve Lukather, Michael Brecker, Randy Brecker, Wayne Shorter, Joe Zywinaw, Maceo Parker, Rob Thomas, Al Jarreau, and just a slew of other people in different types of styles, and he has his own trio and all kinds of stuff, and we're going to get all into that, so... Really, really excited to have him on the show and a great conversation that I had with Rodney. So without further ado, let's get into it, Mr. Rodney Holmes. Rodney, what's going on, man? Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. No problem. It is, uh, it's great to have you. We were just talking off air about how small of a world it is, man. It's so crazy to, to connect with people and it's, you know, who, who have mutual friends outside of like the music industry. And you're like, man, how did, do you, how did we even connect on that? You know, <laughs> it's definitely cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, it's, it's really great to have you on the show because, uh, you know, you've influenced so many players out there and your reputation definitely precedes you. Um, but I always like to get the backstory on how, how somebody got into drumming like yourself, uh, you know, the story of how you got into playing and how you forged a career in music. So take us there to when you started. Wow. Um, well, uh, I, I guess I was about eight or nine years old. And, um, basically, uh, uh I, b- I remember someone coming into, uh, our classroom and asking if uh, anyone wanted to join the junior band. And so I said, yeah, I want to join the junior band. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I was a music lover for as long as I can remember. It was like, it was music, comic books and science fiction and drawing. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I was already doing a lot of drawing and uh, getting into painting. Um, so it wasn't like a, I thought I would end up being a musician, but I just loved music. So anyway, uh, so I said, yeah, I'd like to join the junior band. And so uh, that was basically how it started. And, and And, you know, all the kids would line up and, when it was their turn to talk to the music teacher, they, you know, he would ask, well, what, what instrument do you want to play? And gave us a, a choice of instruments. And so I just thought it might be fun. Right. You know, to, to, to play drums and, uh, you know, all of the records that I was listening to at the time, uh, um, I was always fascinated by the rhythm section. So I said drums. Mm-hmm. You know, so you what, know. what records were you listening to at the time? Oh God! Um, well, when I was really young, it was it was uh, just kind of classic stuff, you know, like James Brown, Earth, Wind, and Fire, um, Parliament, Funkadelic, and my sister had uh, 
a different set of albums. So I was checking out Led Zeppelin and uh, Jimi Hendrix and all this classic stuff. And, um, you know, it was just the, the, the rhythm section just fascinated me. So that, I mean, that was like early on, I'm talking like seven, eight, nine years old That's mm-hmm. that I was listening to in the, in the very beginning when imagining playing an instrument. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was basically how it started. Uh, um, uh, signed up to, to play drums and, uh, what back then, you know, the, the school would order, well, we had to pay for it, but you order like a practice pad and a, and a, a rudiment book and one pair of sticks. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. I didn't have a drum kit. I didn't have anything. Right, a pad, sticks, and a book. Yeah, man, kids get sco- kids get spoiled nowadays. They get the whole the whole kit, and you know, you get like back. I I just remember the same thing. It's like here's a pad, and that's where you start. <laughs> exactly, and that and that's that's where it all started. And the the, uh, the teacher taught me how to read music and how to hold the sticks, and that's how it all began. Hmm. So you went the the schooled route and, and, you know, learned all the rudiments and worked out of the books rather than being self-taught? Um, well, I was a self-taught player when it came to actually playing drums, actually playing a drum kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never had a teacher for drum kit. Um, so it was basic, basically, yeah, like the fundamentals of reading and, and getting into rudiments. Yeah, that was, you know, public school, man. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing that that you never had a teacher um, on kit. I mean, you never did, or you're saying at, at a young age you did. At a young age, I didn't have any any kind of uh, teaching at all. Uh, like there was no one that walked me through playing, you know, so the basics of playing a drum kit hmm. or you know what to work on. Later right. on, when I was a teenager and I had a you know had a little part time job, um, I would take a lesson from maybe two people um i remember taking some lessons from a percussionist named frankie malabay at at a, a drummer's collective oh in the city yeah and um but he was basically oh well he was kind of a genius really um but but he uh would take all of these folkloric afro-cuban rhythms and apply it to drum set in a different way, not the way like a lot a lot of guys do it today, where they're playing the clave with the left foot and they've got you know five cowbells and all this stuff. It, it, it was very it was different. Like he would really like distill it down to like what those rhythms were all about, and uh, he had a, a unique way of applying it to drum kit. So I took about three or four lessons from him, um, and then I. Uh, you know, a lesson here and there, but I didn't really have any long-term study um, with uh, any teachers. I, I also took a lesson from a guy named Horace Arnold, uh, who was a fairly well-known jazz drummer in the city at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, was, just pointed some things out. And then he said, okay, um, you don't need to come back to me, but this is what you should listen to. And he gave, wrote down a list of albums uh, <laughs> that I should 
listen to and uh like you know from miles davis to thelonious monk and it was just all these drummers you know tony williams elton jones max roach um all right blakey philly joe jones papa joe jones sid catler like all these guys you know got, some guys i'd heard of some i hadn't and that took me on a journey of learning about where a lot of this stuff comes from hmm. and going out to jam sessions back in the day when there actually used to be jam sessions, not like drummer shed sessions. I mean, actually playing with a band. Right. Right. And learning jazz standards and things like that. And, um, so I kind of did all of this on my own. Um, you know, and uh, so like going to those sessions and learning about, uh, you know, uh, forms, uh, uh, you know, song forms and how to set things up and learn, learning something about uh, the great American songbook, you know, all these mm-hmm. as standards. And at the time, uh, Barry Harris uh, was running a, um, uh, a place called the Jazz Cultural Theater. And back in those days, it was really great. I mean, basically, um, if you were a musician, you you would just pay three dollars and sign up, sign your name and write down what instrument you played next to your name and then they call you up and you'd play with the band. Hmm. And you never knew who was gonna step in. You know, sometimes Art Blakey was there, sometimes Terry Lee Carrington wow. was there. Like all these like heavy guys. And here I was just this kid, you know, just you know, going down there and, and basically making a fool out of myself. <laughs> but I got good real fast. <laughs> <laughs> got a you know room full of people like that like you know who is this kid uh, you know you 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 know you learn quickly and you know a lot of the older guys were, were not shy about telling me what i needed to do and right <laughs> what was wrong and what was right but it, it was it was a great experience i'm sure and that really got me into just it just kind of opened my mind up to to really checking out a lot of american music you know that that i wasn't focused on when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of interesting at the time I was playing in like punk cover bands and, you know, and all this other stuff. But then I was learning jazz and then I started getting called to, to do jazz gigs around the city. Um, and that, that's kind of how it started. I was just learning, learning, learning from anyone, you know, like anyone that was older than me and anyone that had real experience playing. Right. Um, uh, and they were the ones that called me, um, you know, it was like people that have been doing it for a long time and just one thing led to another. So that's basically, you know, it's sort of like a, an abbreviated version of right how things got started. So at what point did you, did you really make a conscious decision to say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do as a career. This is the, the road that I'm going to go down and really put you know, all of your eggs in that basket, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I think I was about, about 18 or 19. Yeah. Yeah. And I really want, that's what I, you know, it was either that or continue with, 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 with being an artist. Right. But, you know, in order to, 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 uh, to get to that level, you know, that, that, um, you know, that professional level, you, you know, you know how it is. You have to dedicate a lot of time. Right. Right. 
And I, I realized that, you know, I just didn't, I mean, I, I, I had the talent, but I, I wasn't putting in the time as an artist to really, you know, just, it, I just didn't have those kinds of chops. I mean, there was, a, there was a point where I was developing those kinds of chops and then I probably would have gone to an art school and really, you know. Right really dive in. But, I, you know, I had to make a decision. Like, am I going to do music or am I going to get into this other stuff? Right. And it, that reminds me, I remember hearing an interview with Will Smith and him saying about talent versus skill. And he says, you know, talent you have naturally, but at some point your talent is going to fail. And that's where, that's where skill comes in. And skill comes from hours and hours and hours of beating on your craft. That, that's exactly right. And so you're saying you had some talent, but at some point you had to sort of take that talent and and start converting it into a learned skill of, you know, so that you could really maximize your efforts. Exactly. You know, there's exactly it's it's it it always takes work. I mean, it's funny, like when people say things like, oh, you're you're so naturally gifted, you know. Yeah. Well, no. Yes. But there's there's a lot of work involved. Right. Right. I mean, a ton of work, and and um, but you know, I, when I got a little bit older, I, you know, I, I didn't let that bother me as much because now it, when I think about it, is if you do something and you make it look easy, mm-hmm. um, I guess that's the greatest compliment. Sure, um, sure. Because all of my favorite artists and musicians and whatever that like they always, whatever they did, it seemed like they just you know came out of the womb doing it like it was easy for them. Right. <laughs> and, like, you know, and you see it, and you're like, oh, man, I can do that. that, that I can, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you start, you realize, like, oh, my God, this is hard. Yeah. A guy, one of my mentors, he's a producer, and he said that, you know, the best thing you can ever do when you're writing a song is make it feel like anyone could play it and anyone could have written it themselves. That's right. You yeah. know, and then, like, you go to play it, and you're like, man, this is hard. <laughs> yeah. And so that was, you know, that that was it. I wanted it to look easy and sound easy, and that takes a lot of work. So speaking of work, I know, I mean, and this is a totally loaded question and I understand that, but let's unpack that a little bit about some stuff that you worked on, you know, like I, because I know there's so many listeners out there that I get questions about too. It's like not necessary, you know, well, it's, you know, what should I practice? How should I, how should I practice? How can I get the, the most out of my practice time? And I really want to take this seriously. Um, you know, so how did you, how did, how did you make that leap from sort of the the amateur mind mindset to the professional mindset and how did you do you know make that transition in the practice room as well um i'm, I'm trying to think so i can give you an honest answer um, uh, basically at the time i was playing a lot not just practicing but but i was getting called for gigs mm-hmm. and whenever i did a gig and I didn't feel good about it. Uh, I, the next day, I would get up and try to figure what I needed to work on. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I would remember like what it was that didn't feel right, or you know, and that was my mission that day was to work on that. 
so it was just going back to the drawing board. Like if something was wrong or if my time was weird or just whatever it was, instead of being discouraged, uh, I would just tell myself, I need to fix this. I need to figure out what the problem is. And that's what I did. So I just kept troubleshooting mm-hmm. and um, trying to solve problems. It, um, that's, yeah, that's, that's basically it. Like I just constantly worked on things that I needed, that I felt I needed to work on. Hmm. That's interesting. If, uh, yeah, I mean, even if other people were saying, oh, that was great last night. And, uh, I, I knew that it wasn't, you know, I knew that I, I, I knew how I wanted it to go. Right. And how it should have felt and what I should have executed, you know, or, or how I should, maybe I did execute it, but not very well, or maybe it was just, it wasn't comfortable or it was too stiff, whatever it was, I knew there was a problem. So I needed to fix it. And I just never stopped doing it. I always tried to figure out what was going on that needed work. Hmm. So now did you, did you, uh, tape yourself or film yourself or anything like that? Or just sort of taking metal notes and then applying that the next day? Um, I, I guess mental notes. And if, um, I didn't, you know, I didn't start recording myself until much later. Mm-hmm. It was more of, about how the, sh- how, the, how the shows were going. Right. Um, and the reaction, the reactions from the other musicians and from the audience mm-hmm. and how I felt. Right. And I could tell that I was getting better. I could, you know, and, and when someone who had more experience would pull me aside and, you know, instead of being an arrogant kid, I, I was extremely humble and I would listen. Um, you know, if the guy was just a jerk, uh, that was, you know, I didn't really pay attention to him. But if someone who was, who really knew what they were doing, mm-hmm. had more experience would pull me aside and say, hey, you need to work on this or you need to work on that. Or, you know, I, I, I listened and right, right. Really tried to fix those things. It's funny that you say that because I remember I played a gig one night and the piano player that I was playing with after the gigs, I was like, you know, is there anything that you can tell me, you know, to how to improve my playing, anything that you hear, you know, like, and he's like, yeah, you know, you're sounding like you're playing pretty heavy handed and like you're, you were kind of bashing a little bit and I'm like, Oh, okay. Like I put that in the mental bank and, you know, try to work on that. And then about 20 minutes later, some other guy comes up to me and he goes, Oh man, your pocket is really great. And I said, Oh, thanks. And he goes, but mine is amazing. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, uh, was that a compliment or was that, what was that? And then the guy just like walked away and I was like, you know what? F that guy. And I was like, Oh, I was like pissed off about it. So it's like you could take, you know, if the criticism is good, it's good and it comes from a good place. But, I was, you know, if someone's try, trying to cut you down, then you just yeah. sort of like block it out. And <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you brought that up because I started to get a lot of that. Just guys coming up and saying things, not exactly that, but things like that, you know, just to cut, just to cut me down. Right. And it took me... Um, in the beginning, it didn't bother me so much because I was, you know, I, I, I had tunnel vision. It was just like, I would only listen to the people that I had respect for. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't listen to what any other drummers said, uh, you know, unless, you know, any other guy, you know, I, 
I only listened to people that had experience. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a way. There, there, there's a way to offer some criticism. You know, the one thing, though, that usually the older guys will, you know, even if they're tough about it, you could, you, you could tell when they're sincere. Right, right. And if they didn't think you had what it took in the first place, they wouldn't even bother to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's really the only time, <laughs> guys like that, it's really the only time they would say anything. Like Barry Harris pulled me aside one, one night, and, and um, he, 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 you know, the only thing he, usually he would just say, hey, how are you, you know, tonight, and how's everything going? And that was it, you know, just right. really, really kind man. And then uh, one night he kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, look, you, you got to watch how you bring the band back in, you know, like after trading fours or when you go into the bridge. Um, I knew that it, the fact that he took the time to tell me these things mm-hmm. uh, meant that he, he thought it was worth telling me, you know, like, like he, he – uh, had enough, he respected me enough to actually tell me rather than just leaving me out, you know, my ass out there to dry. <laughs> right, know? looking like a fool. Yeah, you know, it, it was the worst thing you could do, but he, he and I, you know, but but when, when guys do things like that, um, well, when I was younger anyway, guys would say things. Um, I, for some reason, it didn't bother me as much then as it does now. Just, <laughs> <laughs> So strange. Um, I don't know. I, I guess because I, I was on this mission you know, right. just to get better. Right, right, right. I, yeah. I don't know. And maybe, you know, you're you're at the point in your career that you've also, not that you, you know, not that you know everything and that you can't take criticism, but it's, you know, you're kind of like, hey, man, I've been, I've been doing, so, I'm doing pretty well so far, you know? Yeah, plus, uh, plus the, the, one of the advantages of experience is is that if you if you stay open minded, and you and you remain objective, I mean, you know, having confidence and feeling good is is not the same thing as being arrogant, right? And uh, but if you remain objective, you can. Well, I can only speak for myself, but I can tell when something is not. Not right. So I'm usually my my worst critic. I'm usually harder on myself than anybody could ever be, mm-hmm. um, because it's these are things that you know there might be some things that I know like okay this was not right. This needs to be worked on, or I need to you know fix some things, or 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 remind myself, or whatever. Where maybe something's not right, and right. These are things that that you know I don't sweep under the uh, you know I would never sweep that on, under the rug. So the advantage of of having some experience, like usually you're more on top of it than anyone else is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, if someone comes up and says something weird, you know they're they're just being a jerk. Right. Right. I, I mean, I could t- uh, you wouldn't believe some of the things that that uh. Guys would stand in line to talk to me, right? Mm-hmm. Just to say something really weird. <laughs> they would stand there for ten minutes, you know, and they'll come up and, you know, I'd be nice and say, "Hey, how are you?" And 
I'm thinking that they, you know, why wouldn't anybody stand in line for 10 minutes? You know, right, right, right. thinking that maybe they enjoyed the show. Right. <laughs> um, but they would wait in line just to say something weird. And uh, <laughs> you're you like, know, don't you have something better to do? Like, than- really, man? You, really? Really? You, you waited in line just so you could come and say that? <laughs> right. Don't you have something better to do? But it's that sort of thing that, you know, I'll get now. Right, right. Yeah, it's strange. And, you know, going back to what you talked about, about playing with playing with older people and, and surrounding yourself with people that have a lot more experience than you. I mean, I was fortunate enough to, to come up with, with uh, Joey and Johnny DeFrancesco. Uh, Joey, the great organ player, and his brother Johnny and I cut a record together, and he cut, and he took me under his wing, and and uh, another drummer, Glenn Farricone, and they're older than you know they're they're twenty years older than me, and I probably learned more in the three years that I was hanging heavy with those guys than I did in all my other years of playing. So you know, I think that if the listeners out there are getting something out of this, is that you gotta. You know, you definitely got to get with some cats that are going to steer you in the right direction, and and will tell you there's some things that you need to work on and some things that you need to fix. And they're not trying to cut you down; they're exactly. they're trying to trying to help you get to the next point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very true. the 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 one thing um, that I, I think you know, if you're young, if you're younger, uh, you have to be careful of is. Um, like when you were talking about Joey DiFrancesco, like giving you advice, you know, tell, telling you certain things you need to get together or work on, that's the healthy criticism. Right. Um, it, it just – sometimes guys get – like when when they hear something from someone or, or usually if they're, uh, you know, their peers, you know, if they're, if they're young, will say certain things. Um, either to put you down or just to, I don't know, just, just, just because of their insecurity, they, they right. feel they have to say something. And, and that can kind of, um, uh, screw with a, a person's head, you know, especially mm-hmm. younger. Yeah. And you have to be careful. Like, don't listen too much to everybody else around you. Um, Listen to the people that, like you said, if you if you're playing with people that are older and have experience, you know, and if they have something to say, then that's great. Right. Uh, but the, so the most important thing is like uh, what they think and how the band, how it feels with the band and the audience's reaction. Mm-hmm. Just don't get too hung up on you know, who's who and who does what and, and you don't do this because this other guy's doing it. You know, that stuff can really get in the way yeah. of you finding your own voice and just playing really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, some guys have a thicker skin. It does, you know, some guys thrive from that. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't good for me. I really had to block that out. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if, if I needed to block it out, I can't be the only one that, sure. that needs to uh, be careful mm-hmm. with stuff and, you know, sort of block that out. Yeah, I mean, that, can, that could totally ruin someone's career if they, you know, hear it the wrong way or, or, you know, misinterpret something. And I know, you know, 
once in a while, there's, you know, there's people that, that are in this business that have been in this business for a long time and have either, you know, ruined their own careers and now are very bitter and cynical and, and want to sort of project that onto other players and, yes and, you know, see someone else starting to succeed a little bit and they'll, ah, oh, well, you're going to, you're going to screw it up anyway, or, you know, you can't play anyway. So and try yeah. to try <laughs> yeah. to knock you down, you know? Yeah. And, and they'll do it and they can be very passive aggressive about it as well. Right. Right. Which is even worse. Sure. Sure. So, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So just be careful and, and, you know, uh, whoever's listening, um, and just, just deal with the music and try not to worry so much about, who's doing what right just do what you do and make sure you're doing a great job and things are feeling good right i just it reminded me of a a getting off stage one time and one of my mentors was there and he just kind of put his arm around me and just said hey man you gotta you gotta get that that shuffle together he's just like it's not happening i'm like okay and that was it and it was just kind of like i know that it came out of a place of love right and i was kind of like oh man it's not happening but he was just like just get it together and we're going to move on. You know, it's like, that's it. I'm just going to tell you that. I was like, I kind of left with my tail between my legs, but I went home and, and shed, you know, on figured out how to play a shuffle correctly. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, that's what happened to me. It was a lot of going home with my tail between my legs when I was, when I was younger, it was, but that's what I needed. You know, I really Mm -hmm. go out there and, um, that was kind of uh, how I learned, really. Right, uh, and I dig it. And as long as uh, if it comes from a good place, I like that. You know, I don't mind somebody. I don't mind that tough love. And like, I've gotten phone calls the next day, and we're like, "Hey, man, are you cool with the conversation that we had last night?" I'm like, "Yeah, that I appreciate it." You know, right? right. I appreciate you knocking me down a little bit in a good way, not in not in a negative way. Yeah, because you know? it's really the only way that you know if if they're older than you and and they have experience. And they see that there's something wrong. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, it, it would be really weird for them not to say something. Right, right. You know, just to not share this information and help you get it together and say, hey, you know, you, you, need, you need to deal with this shuffle or you need to deal with this, you need to deal with that. I mean, for them just to let you, I don't know. So it's, it's, it's expected. Well, it used to be anyway. Right back then that that the older guys would kind of look out for the for the younger musicians mm-hmm. yeah yeah it seems like it's changing a little bit but so well yeah. to 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 summarize what we just talked about if you're listening to this make sure that you find some cats that that encourage you and give you a little uh constructive criticism and you know teach you the the ways of the world uh when it comes to playing and you know styles and everything else that goes along with it so right Right. So I'd like to, I'd love to talk about all the stuff that you did with Santana as well and and sort of the shift of um how you started to get into that and how you landed the gig and and all of that. So how did that come about? Playing with Santana, how did yeah. that come about? Um uh let's see. Well, I was uh well, I I worked with Santana two separate times. Mm-hmm. And the first time, um, I, I was playing with, um, Joe Zawinul. I'm, I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. Who he is. Yeah. Uh, 
Carlos at the time was looking for a drummer. And he had a mutual friend, a guy named Hal Miller, who's a very old friend of mine. Um, and uh, would go out to the West Coast a lot. Uh, he told Carlos about me. And when they told Carlos that I was playing with Joe Zawinul, Carlos was like, wow, really? You know, because Carlos is a jazz fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at that time, I think he'd heard some recordings and um, uh, and um, we had an uh, we had a tour and and uh, one of the shows was in Vienna, Austria. Uh, and that's Joe. That was uh, Zawinul's hometown. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were. It was this huge festival, and the Zawinul Syndicate was was gonna was opening up for Santana. So, uh, I was trying to describe how this happened. Um, <laughs> I guess all the guys, <laughs> the the rhythm section, they were all kind of like on the side of the stage while we were playing, mm-hmm. and apparently Car- Carlos was as well. So he was watching us play. And um, that's how everything started uh, with Carlos. And he was he was going back and forth with drummers, and then he heard about me, and then he saw me, and that was how I ended up playing with him the first time. I got you. Um, then I played, we, we played, I, I, I toured with him for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so whenever I was home, you know, I was doing gigs and, and playing with different people. And uh, the Brecker brothers at the time were looking for a drummer. I think Dennis Chambers had, uh, I think Dennis Chambers had done it. Dave Weckl had done it. They were looking for somebody. They, they were just, I don't know, they were changing drummers a lot for some reason. Hmm. And um, so they were looking for someone. And people were auditioning. Every drummer in New York was auditioning. <laughs> I mean, everyone. And uh, I didn't audition. Um, I had done some shows. I, w- I had already done some stuff with Randy Brecker mm-hmm. and a bunch of other people. And um, some of the guys in, uh, who were playing with the Brecker Brothers, some like James Genus, and you know, we had done gigs together. And so Randy, I think, I think it was Randy and, and George Witte, if I remember, were trying to get Michael to come down to this gig that I was doing. <clears throat> and I said, man, you got to check out this drummer. And, you know, they've been auditioning guys all week. And uh, Mike just didn't feel like going out. Finally, one, they, they, I don't know how they did it, but they, they dragged him out. <laughs> and they got him down. I think it was a, a, a club called The Five Spot. And I forgot who I was playing with, but... Randy came in, Michael came in, and like the whole band. Well, you know, maybe the guitar player wasn't there, but I think it was James and George, Randy and Mike was most of the band, and they had a table. And, uh, you know, Randy came up and said hello and introduced me to Mike, and I was nervous as hell. (laughs) Um, And uh, so, and Mike was really nice, you know, he said, well, you know, I'm just going to hang out for a while. I probably won't stay for the second set. And I said, okay, well, it's really nice to meet you. 
And so we played, and I was so stiff. Yeah. It just did not feel like myself. And Because they were there. Yeah, because yeah. It, you know, if it was just, the whole band was there. <laughs> it was like worse than an audition. All right. It was, yeah, the whole band was there, and it was just, and I just didn't feel good at all. So mm-hmm. we, anyway, long story short, we finished the first set. Um, Mike comes up to me, and I'm thinking he's coming up to say, "Well, look, uh, it's nice to see you. Nice to meet you. I'm, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm leaving." Right. And he comes up to me and he goes, "You got to come over here and sit down. Come, come sit down." And I said, "Okay." So I went and sat down. And he said, "Look, man, you got to play with us." He <laughs> said, "Perfect. You, you, you're perfect for this game. You have to do this." He said, "We're going into the studio next month." We're going to Japan. You've got to do this gig. I couldn't believe it. There's <laughs> Michael Brecker you know, telling right. me that he's not going to take no for an answer. We've got to work this out. I, I just couldn't believe it. And uh, and, they, and he stayed the whole night. Nice. And we talk, and he talks. Says, What's your schedule? What are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm going out with Santana, and I get, you know, we're doing this and this. And, and he said, look, we, we got to work something out. So, you know, when Michael and Randy Brecker are telling you, you got to work something out. Because you're like, i got to work something out. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, you know, other people would say, well, dude, you, you play with Santana. You know, it's, that's a much bigger, you know. Much gig. bigger gig, right. And uh, But at the time, I really wanted to play with the Brecker brothers. I mean, uh, I love that music. You know, I mm-hmm. kind of love listening to a lot of that music. And that was kind of... That was more important to me at the time um, to do that gig, even though I didn't audition, audition for it. Um, the fact that Michael wanted me to do it, I mean, I just had to do it. Sure. So I had to go back and talk to Carlos and explain to him that I needed, you know, to... Uh, do this other thing. And I, you know, I would give him, you know, two months notice, which is like more than enough time. Right. And I'm sure there are, you know, a million drummers that would jump at the chance to play with Santana. Sure. I would. So <laughs> I didn't think it was such a, you know, I honestly didn't believe it. They think it would be such a big deal, you know? And so I said, you know, you know, I, I love playing with the band. It's an honor and privilege to work with you. Um, but at this age, you know, I was much younger at the time. I just, this is something I feel that I have to do. And so we had uh, arranged for me to do like half the tour. Uh, and by that, by that time, they would have had like, they would have narrowed down uh, I'm sure they were, they were going to have auditions and, and narrow. That was a learning experience. Um, so anyway, I left and and worked with the Brecker Brothers for about three years, which was fantastic. Awesome. And learned a lot. And later on, I know I mean, this story is long. Ago. No, that's hey man, we're that's what we're here for. <clears throat> um, uh, oh, let me just let me say the Santana organization. They were totally everybody. You know, right. Right. Uh, but anyway, so later on, you know, uh, uh, 
worked, I think, toward about three years at the Brecker Brothers and recorded Out of the Loop uh, mm-hmm. CD. Uh, um, and then uh, years later, I think I was touring with Wayne Shorter. And I got a call from Santana Management that they they uh, were looking for a drummer and Carlos really wanted me to do it. And, and um, Were you surprised by that call? I was a bit surprised, and, and you know, at the time there was there was um, you know certain people in the band um, that for some you know this is a long time ago, but for, there was certain certain people in the band that didn't like. I, uh, it, this is really hard to explain. Uh, most of the guys were from the West Coast, right? And I think there were certain there was a certain contingent in the band that didn't like the fact that I was doing it. I mean, from the very beginning. Really? Yeah. Why? Just because you were from the East coast? Well, they were, things were being said about me being from the East coast and having a, 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 a certain attitude or, you know, and, and I was probably the nicest, most naive kid ever. (laughs) You just couldn't have, I, I mean, it was crazy how, how nice I was. And, but I think there was, there were certain people in the band that just for some reason didn't feel comfortable with me there. So I had no plans to go back and work with Santana. Right. Specifically for that reason. And, um, so when, so when they called, I was a bit surprised. Sure. And I said, uh, well, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. Well, I said, no. Right. And then, uh, I think about two years later, uh, they called again. And, uh, this time Carlos got on the phone and he said, look, you know, really like to like you to come and play, you know, we're, we're going to be doing a, an important tour and then we're, we're working on this album, you know, with Clive Davis and, you know, I really, you know, would like you to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't his manager, it was him personally. And we talked for a while and, and that's how that happened. So I went out and I think, uh, I think it was what, 1999, I think. No, 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 it was 97. And, uh, you know, learned all this new material and, and toured with them. And then eventually we went into the studio and did the Supernatural album. Mm-hmm. And then we went back and toured around the world and we did a bunch of videos. And, uh, yeah, so that was, that story was. And that record was huge too. It was, it was gigantic. I mean, yeah. I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea how big that was going to be. I remember when that record what was that like ninety nine. It was ninety nine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I had no idea. I mean, uh, what I was getting into at the time. I mean, um, I was on the the biggest record with the biggest band in the world at that time. Right. It was crazy. And how long did you tour with him after that? I mean, how long were you with him for your your second stint? 
um, it was about maybe three and a half years. I got you. Something like that. Um, the supernatural, um, it all culminated like at the end, toward the end with winning all of those Grammys. Right. And being on the Grammy Awards, performing, and then going back around the world, you know, touring again, uh, literally around the world. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the the very next year um, I was out. Right. So most of the touring was was uh, before the Supernatural recording. I got you. I got you. I mean, it all kind of, in, you know... Um, it, that that was kind of like the, the 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 high point. Sure, yeah. I just, that just that record was huge. Like you said, I, was, I just I mean it was everywhere. You couldn't you couldn't get away from it. It was it was everywhere. It yeah. was really smooth. It was. Just, yeah, that song that tune was. Oh my god, it was so weird. I mean, walking into a pharmacy or a grocery store and hearing myself. Right. It was bizarre. <laughs> and because of all of those videos, I mean, uh, people were actually stopping me on the street because they recognized me. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was insane, man, for a minute, you know, for, for a while, for a few years. Uh, and we went to Mexico. And the band was so huge that, um, uh, well... I mean, maybe they they do this with any sort of well known artist, you know. But but the security was beyond anything I've ever seen. Hmm. Um, I mean, it was sort of like the it was the type of security that heads of state have. Right. Um, each band member had a bodyguard. Wow. And these are like ex Navy SEAL guys. You know, with the, you know, with the the sunglasses and the earpiece and the whole, you know, it was it was crazy, and wow. they had these uh, bulletproof SUVs, um, like about four of them, and uh, so like two guys or three guys were assigned to a very to a specific car. Um, we couldn't leave the hotel with it without letting the security guy know. Like, you know, you'd have to you'd have to call him and then let him know that you were coming out. What? That's that crazy. You were, you were taking the elevator down into the lobby, and it's like, what do you need? Well, I need to go to the store to get toothpaste. Okay, hold on. <laughs> and then he, and he, they would check everything and say, okay, come down. And uh, they would all know that I was on my way down or Raul was on his way down or something like that. And, like, each person had a guy. And my guy took me to the pharmacy to get toothpaste. I mean, it was, they were so afraid of, of a member of the band being kidnapped. Right. And, um, you know, for ransom. Right. Was it scary? I mean, were you like, were you concerned? Well, it, in the beginning, I was concerned. Right. Because, uh, you know, they were telling me that how often people or attempt, you know, people, uh, uh, there are attempted kidnappings, uh, depending on how well known the person is. Uh, right. 
And the fact that they were taking this that seriously uh, made me concerned. Right. Um, but, but but when that guy, man, when this this guy, you know, escorted me into this bulletproof SUV <laughs> to take me to the pharmacy to get toothpaste, <laughs> I have to admit it was kind of fun. Right. At that point. I I would probably enjoy that at, on some weird level. Yeah, like it, it was just it was just so crazy. And, right. Uh, you You're know, like we, I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't feel like a big deal, but I just I, it gave me a, some insight into how you know, like a, a senator or someone like that. You know, sure. Is treated. Nice. Um, just just the, the amount of security and the amount of. The, uh, of organization that goes into making sure someone gets from point A to point B. Right. Um, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. So mm. anyway, that's how big the band was at the time. That's insane. I mean, it, it was only, but in Mexico, I mean, we didn't have that kind of security in it anywhere else. But right. Right. Since Carlos is Mexican and, um, and you know, there were kidnappings. So they, they took some, you know, extra precautions. Mm hmm. I remember I'm, uh, I interviewed somebody and we had to pull it out of the, we had to take it out of the interview, but they were just saying that they're on tour. They don't get their flight arrangements until the night of like after the show. So they book everything last minute so that no one knows like where they're flying wow. or, or when they're leaving and when they're arriving. Also, So every, every day they sort of get an itinerary to see like where they're going the next day. Be- right, because of like how famous the guy is, which yeah. is just insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It can, yep. It can, it can be very. Uh, yeah, it can just be straight up insane. It reminds me of a not to get off off topic too much. I remember watching an episode or a, a special about Air Force One and everything that goes into Air Force One and you know where they're flying and how they're flying and the people who are on board and all the security measures that go into it and everything. It's absolutely amazing the stuff that they do. Yeah. I never knew how big that plane was either. There's like different flights and or different, you know, levels and all kinds of stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Yeah. So that that's pretty. Um, uh, I can't think of anything else um, um, as far as the Santana. You know, it was a great experience. Uh, I learned a lot. I mean, it's all a learning experience. And, right. Um, uh, is there anything else worth mentioning? <laughs> uh, the Grammys were pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, that was nuts. I can imagine. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, one funny story. Um, when I was at the Brecker Brothers, uh, the, there was a, a CD that I played on called Out of the Loop. Mm-hmm. And that won a grant, that won s- several Grammys. And uh, it was a tune that Michael wrote called African Skies mm-hmm. that I played on. And that won best contemporary jazz something. I don't remember. But anyone who performed on that song got a Grammy for their, for their participation, right? for the musicianship. And um, so I thought, oh, this is great. You know, this is uh, some years before the Santana stuff. But, but 
if you're in the jazz category or some other category, like other than, I don't know, rock, pop or hip hop or, you know, the, the, the real popular categories, mm. they, they do treat you like a second class citizen. Like you, <laughs> right. It's like you're not televised. Yeah. You don't get the statue. <laughs> you don't get the statue that, you know what they do? They technically you won the statue. Right. But what they do is they send you a certificate <laughs> yeah. saying you, you have won this Grammy, you know, and then there's your name and your mm-hmm. Grammy winner with, with a, with the Grammy emblem and the seal. With, yeah, with an emblem. Yeah, exactly. And, and I said, well, where, where's the statue? Well, you have to pay $200 for the statue. Right. So I said, there's no way I'm going to pay for my own Grammy. That's, that's insane. Right. I'm not going to pay these guys for something I want. So it's just send me the certificate with the frame. <laughs> um, and then so when I go back to with Santana, not only do I get the record of the, of the year uh, Grammy, but I get the other eight Grammys that, uh, that, that, that went to the album, hmm. you know, production, whatever, you right. know. Everyone in the band is supposed to get a Grammy anyway. You mm-hmm. literally, I think, by two or three or something like that, for record of the year and song of the year and whatever of the year. And they sent me every single Grammy. Um, FedExed it like really? two huge boxes of Grammy. I mean, I have nine Grammys, ten and and, and what? No, nine. Nine. They Grammys. sent you the statues too. That's what I'm saying. Nice. Statues. Nice. No charge. That's awesome. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, because like my, my, the guy that I practice with every day, Dylan Wissing, he's won, uh, I think he's won three Grammys and was nominated for a couple other ones and he just gets the certificates and he's like, you know, that's what they sent me. <laughs> yeah. What, what category was, was, uh, did he win? I mean, what? he won. Uh, he played. Well, he played on that Alicia Keys "Girl on Fire" song. So I think they won like Song of the Year or Album of the Year or something like that. Right. Um, and, they did, and they didn't send him a Grammy for the Alicia Keys. No. No. No, because no, I think well, he only played on that tune. So I don't know if he got Song of the Year or I forget what he got. So he played on that, and I think he won one with uh, with Drake too for that "Take Care" record. Oh, okay. I'm surprised that they didn't send him a, uh, didn't actually send him the Grammy. Because yeah, they, I don't. I'll have, to, I'll have to ask him to to pick a bone with uh, with with the Grammy, and that's the thing with the plaques too. Like you have to pay for the plaques too. Like the you know, like if you sold a million records and you get the platinum record. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you know they sent me that too. Right. They so that's me. I guess like Santana's camp just paid for that for you. Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I seriously doubt it. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, um, we got American Music Awards. I mean, it, it's, it's it's crazy the amount of awards, the amount of awards that I didn't have to pay for. But you know, right? Uh, with the Brecker Brothers, you'd think, you know, with with their you know pedigree and their history. Uh, yeah, and it's just it's just weird, you know the the lack of respect. Yeah, that is, it is nuts. Especially that it's like, you know, it's not televised or anything like that. Like, 
it's insane. But yeah. anyway, I just thought that was funny. That it is funny, yeah. That the fact that like <laughs> we'll just send you a shipment of this stuff. Yeah, they wouldn't give me one for the Breaker Brothers, and I get ten. <laughs> that's insane so now speaking of like look at we're looking at these two different sides of the coin we're looking at santana we're looking at brecker brothers i mean you've played with steve lucifer you've played with you know all a wide range of different people and i remember reading an article about you years ago about how you're sort of a chameleon and you can play all these different styles um and someone like you i always like to ask what your sort of what your approach is and what your advice is for people who want to not just be genre specific, but want to have this breadth of, of styles that they can play and get hired for. What would you suggest? Well, that's a really hard question. Um, that's hard. Uh, the reason why it's hard is because um, when I was, you know, practicing and playing around New York, I never, it it wasn't, it wasn't that I had to learn how to do all of these things. Mm -hmm. I grew up listening to all of these things, you know, like the records that I had at home. Um, To me, I didn't really understand how musicians would separate themselves so drastically uh, by genre. Mm Mm-hmm. It just didn't make any sense to me. I mean, so the majority of this music pretty much comes from the same place. Right. Uh, uh, jazz, um, what people really, I don't know if people, some, maybe young people don't realize this, but um, jazz was actually music that people danced to. It, it was sort of like the, the dance music of that day. Sure. And um, blues-based, very sophisticated harmonically, rhythmically, but it was danceable. You know, people would actually go out to clubs and dance to big band music. It was meant for that. It was meant, it was meant to make people dance. Mm-hmm. It was just really, really sophisticated. And um, so it... It, it all of this music kind of comes from the same place to some degree, you know, um, you know, they're, they're sort of like branches on the same tree. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, I just, I don't know. I, ne- I never, I never separated the music that much. Um, when learning about jazz or, or acoustic you know, straight ahead, like there's bop and hard bop and there's big band. And then you get more into, you know, what guys are doing in the late sixties and the seventies, um, with the Tony Williams lifetime and, you know, the Mahavishnu orchestra and weather report, you know, when they were kind of taking it to different places and making it more electric. Um, all of that made sense to me. And, um, if you, Back in the day, like they were, they would actually have festivals. Like they'd have like some pop band, some some popular bands on the same bill as the Mahavish as the Mahavishnu Orchestra, right. or you'd see the Weather Report on Don Kirshner's rock concert. You know, like there was, I think, a little bit more of a of a of a connection with music in general. Sure. Back then, 
and that's kind of, I guess, how I grew up thinking about music just on my own. So I thought I, I, it, it, it didn't seem strange, you know, to have like, <clears throat> excuse me, to have like, you know, Rush moving pictures and signals and, you know, James Brown collection, uh, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire, I Am, and That's the Way of the World. You know, to have all these records, like, it, it didn't seem weird to me. Um, where some other kids, you know, you either liked one thing or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you were if you were in the prog rock, you know, they, you didn't know anything about James Brown, right? Vice versa. That made absolutely no sense to me. Mm-hmm. To me, that was weird. You know, I thought I was normal. I didn't know how weird I was until I got <laughs> older. I had no idea. Right. Right. So me being able to play with. Paul Gilbert and Randy Brecker, to me, that's normal. Right. You're supposed to be able to do that. I mean, that's what I always thought. Right. It's all, it's just music. It's all, it's all the same. It's music. It's American music. And, and to, to, to turn your nose up at one thing because you're into something else is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So coming up as a musician, It just never occurred to me until I started playing with more musicians and realizing that most musicians weren't like that. Right. It, they, it, that, that was kind of a, um, one of the first bitter pills uh, for me to swallow, is that a lot of these guys locked themselves into a box voluntarily. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And sometimes involuntarily, you know, that, that they just get put into a box depending on who they are or if they're an African-American musician. You know, like some people can't wrap their minds around the fact that they, that they do all of these other things. Right. Um, it's, it's weird, you know, but I, I came up wanting to play all of this stuff because this, this is the music that I liked. Sure. Uh, so if there was something that came out, a band that I liked, if I liked the music, I bought the album, I went to see them, I was into it. And so that was all a part of <clears throat> whatever uh, vocabulary I had at the time as, as a kid, mm-hmm. getting into music. Um, so later on, like through study and work and playing and, it, it it was quite easy for me to, you know, play with all of these different people. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And, and so many people, like you said, try to or compartmentalize everything and say, no, I'm just a rock guy or I'm just a jazz guy or, you know, like I'm a rock guy. I don't listen to jazz. And you're like, well, do you know where rock came from? Exactly. Let's, <laughs> you know, like let's, uh, let's rewind the tape a little bit and see where rock and roll started. Exactly. You know? Yeah, a lot. Of, you're exactly right. And so to, for someone who doesn't have that view about music in general, you know, if, if they don't have that kind of philosophy, it's not like someone sat me down and taught me this. It was just how I grew up. Right. That makes total sense. And it, like I said, it never occurred to me that there were these, like, uh, huge distinction like these walls up mm-hmm. uh, between 
um, these different dialects of music. Right. Um, and you just have to learn those dialects, but, and, and you have to like them, you know, you can't fake it. Right. Um, and that's what it is. I mean, as far, I mean, it, it might seem overly simplistic for some people that are listening, but I, I'm telling you, that's just how I, that's, that's how it was for me. Um, I mean, I don't know. The only advice I would give is, is anyone is to remain open-minded mm-hmm. and um, maybe do, uh, doing research and, you know, is a, is, is probably a good idea. Um, like just, if, if you have uh, some understanding of where all of this music comes from, it can change your perspective. And for me, I started to see the similarities in all of this, all of these different types of music. Mm-hmm. They're very similar, you know. Um, they're all very rhythmic and very like groove oriented. Right. That's one thing. Ultimately, at some point or another, they all come from the same place, and and you know there are certain characteristics, but if they understand. If, if if they could see it that way, I think it could help. Just just having that perspective, mm-hmm. um, I would say, uh, if they want to be able to play a lot of these different things, um, like do, do they want to do it just uh, so that they can be able to do it at work, or do, do, do they also want to do it because they like playing that music? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, that's a question, you know, that's a legitimate question. Um, if you like it, it'll also be easier to, to become more fluent in that language. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't like it, then maybe you shouldn't do it. Yeah. What's the point? <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you're open to it, you might find that you do like it. I think a lot of guys psych themselves out of liking something without even giving it a chance. Right. And they get intimidated, especially like, you know, I don't know. I don't understand why, but jazz always intimidates people because maybe people can't wrap their brain around it. And, you know, they start listening to it and they're like, no, I don't get it. I don't like it. Uh, Yeah. That I I think what you just said is true. There's another component to that though. Um, There's a lot of bad jazz. Um, There is. And, um, and I think it's, it, it can be, if you don't know much about jazz, it's, it's hard to know, um, where to go. It's hard to know where to start, Mm -hmm. but you know, you say jazz, you know, some people will think of like smooth jazz or Kenny G or, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Um, one of the. Uh, one of the unfortunate things is, is, is that uh, a lot of people in this country have no idea how rich the culture is or has been here. Like they don't know anything about the great American composers. You know, um, they don't know anything about Wayne Shorter and Thelonious Monk. Right. And Miles, uh, Coltrane. 
I mean, they have no idea. And that's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Everyone, you know, there are places around the world where, where, you know, these geniuses were held in high regard. But uh, here they don't, they, most people don't know. And the reason why I bring that up is because if you listen to, if you know who they are and you listen to that music, let's say, you, you know, to try to get some understanding of jazz, uh, it probably wouldn't seem so complex when they listen to it. Mm-hmm. Or like if you listen to Duke Ellington or Count Basie, I mean, they were just, those tunes were like pop tunes. Yeah. But they were just like really, really sophisticated, just incredibly well-written and, and incredibly well-played. And I think if people knew where to go to kind of understand where this came from, and, and then when, when they go further in time, you know, when you hear Weather Report or when you hear, you know, Coltrane, uh, uh, like Blue Train, and then when he got into the crazier stuff, uh, I, I think they could, they could get a better sense of how this music was evolving. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to those guys, it's really not hard to wrap your mind around it. Right. Because the music is, it's so well written and it's so well played. You know, they play things that really mean something. They're not, I I just think it translates Mm -hmm. uh, better. uh, So where do you suggest people start listening wise? Um... Because I think it's a little heavy to just like jump into like, I don't know, like Bitches Brew or something or, you know, just I, I always I always like to put people into something that's a little easier to digest and, and understand at first before you start getting into like more. Oh, so are you talking about like younger people or are you talking about your your mom and your dad? <laughs> I mean, well, like, let's just uh, say like the drummers that are out there now that are like, man, I really need to work on my jazz chops. I got to start listening to more jazz. Okay. Do they, I guess the first thing is like, okay, well, I won't say that. I was going to say, well, do, do they, are, do they like jazz? Are they interested in jazz? But they should listen to it anyway, just to have a clue. Um, right. Uh, where do, where do I begin? Jesus. <laughs> That's really, I don't, I don't know. Um, it, you know, it depends on, it depends on the person. If they're just, if they just want to hear a bunch of complicated stuff, like if, if uh, or if, if, do they really want to listen to music and try to get a sense of, you know what I'm saying? Like from mm-hmm. a musical perspective, it depends on what they're looking for. Right. Um, right. And when you say jazz, <clears throat> there's such a wide spectrum. Sure. Um, so are they talking about straight ahead, more acoustic stuff? Um, it, it's it's hard. You know, maybe it might be better for them to to, to start uh, maybe work their way backwards rather mm-hmm. than like going back. And I don't. I got you. yeah, I got you, and just kind you of know, like. There might be too much of a shot, you know, it just might, 
be too drastic. <laughs> right. You know, they've been listening to, you know, I don't know. These guys have been listening to death metal all their lives. And all of a sudden you like, you're here to check out Count Basie. You know, it right. Might, it might be a little jarring. Sure. Or, so maybe depending on who, you know, who it is, like if they're into odd meters or, you know, like it depends on what it is that they like, then I would say, okay, maybe check out some of, um, there's so much stuff to listen to. I don't know. I know. You know, a good place to start might be weather report. Mm -hmm. Um, And because Weather Report's kind of like a, it's kind of like a cornerstone band. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I think I don't know if they call themselves a fusion band at the time. Uh, I mean, because they were just so different. You know, there were right. elements of of music from different parts of the world. But man, was, they were so good too. There was Ugh. just there's just so much like incredibly poignant information in that music and all the iterations of weather report. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I choose what I'd say weather report because there's so many directions that they could go in. Um, you know, you had, uh, you had Zawinul's compositions, you had Wayne Shorter's compositions mm-hmm. and both of those guys came up playing acoustic music. Uh, Joe, you know, played with Cannonball Adderley. Yep. Um, Wayne played with everybody, you know, and, and just that, that seminal band with, with, uh, with Miles Davis and, and, uh, Tony Williams and Ron Carter, Herbie Hancock. Mm-hmm. So, so they have roots, you know, they're bringing a lot of weight to weather report and experimenting with this weird electric music. Right. So they're bringing all of that, that, you know, they're, they're, they're bringing that lineage into something that's brand new to something that people weren't really, it, that no one had never heard before at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe Weather Report um, might be a good place to start. I, I, um, I'm sorry, I'm not being more specific. No, that's cool. I mean, it's just hard because, like, if I had a student and I understood, you know, I, I kind of knew the student, then depending on who that person was, I, I would, I might recommend something else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To get them hooked and to get them interested so they could start doing their own research. And then maybe they come back and say, wow, I really love this album. Like what else can I listen to? And then, then I, that I'd know how to guide them. Okay. If you like this, check this out or check this out. And then if I knew they were open to it, then I would say, okay, you need to understand where this comes from and maybe go back. Right. Um, uh, or, you know, or, go forward first and then go back. Mm-hmm. But I would say weather report. I would say Ma- the Mahavishnu orchestra mm-hmm. um, before, you know, because it's still somewhat contemporary. You know what I mean? Right. Right. It, um, I might start with that. Um, I remember the first time I ever heard Mahavishnu, I, my head almost exploded. <laughs> It's amazing. I mean, it's so amazing. You know, it's That's just crazy. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah. Uh, so th- that's what I would. Uh, yeah, I might start with those two groups. Uh, the Tony Williams Lifetime. Yeah. In particular, there's an album called Believe It. Uh, it's uh, Alan Holsworth, Anthony Newton, Alan Pasqua, and Tony. And I think it might have been. I, I, I mean, I'm sure people will correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong. But I think that it might have been when he first started using the larger kit, you know, the big 24-inch bass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, sort of John Bonham size kit, uh, <laughs> uh, drums. You know, the the with the two. I think it was. Three, I think did he have the three four times the time with the, the big yellow kit? I yeah, think yeah, yeah. Right when he first started using the big yellow kit, going from more of the jazz kit with the eighteen inch bass drum to to more of a, of a like the rock kit sounding kit. And right, um, believe it is a is is a pretty, I think iconic album mm-hmm. uh, and just hearing Alan Holsworth play through a Marshall man <laughs> with Tony it's just amazing and those 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 tunes so yeah I, that might be a, a good place might be a good place to start you know cool and then you know they can they can take it from there cool so now we're talking about all this past stuff uh things that you did you know music that is that has been out in the past so let's talk about current and future so what what stuff are you working on now and what what things are you are you uh looking to do in the future um well there's a there there are a bunch of things um at the moment i'm finishing an album a trio album uh with Jimmy Tunnel, who's a phenomenal guitar player. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> we're we're planning on doing some touring this year with uh, Jimmy and Alfonso Johnson on bass. Awesome. Um, and so I'm been writing for that, and uh, you know we're we're laying tracks down. And the music is uh, it's really hard to describe. I guess. Um, uh, I mean, if I think if you went to my website, the one of the tunes is is on the homepage. It's called Ghost, mm-hmm. and that will give you some idea of sort of the direction. So I'm working on that. I'm I'm still doing a lot of stuff with a a great rock guitarist named Jim Weeder. Um, How do I know that name? You know, Jim Jim is pretty amazing. He um. He played with the band, you know, mm-hmm. the band, right? Okay. Um, he played with the band. He replaced Ro- Robbie Robinson uh, in the band. Amazing. Okay. And uh, did a lot of touring with those guys and Lee Von Helm and, um, and then uh, started doing his own thing. Um, and then uh, there was an album called Percolator that, you know, he called me to play on that. And that's mm-hmm. kind of, we, partnered up and i've been working with him ever since cool did two albums together so i'm still working with jim and we're working on some new music um and i'm going to be doing some touring with uh, macy parker yeah i saw that on your site that's awesome and um a few other things that are coming up that i don't want to say anything about yet until right. finalized 
Um, and there's also an, um, I have a, a quartet called Lithium Tree where we do, um, well, it's mainly sort of on the electronic side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm also working on uh, putting some tracks down for that CD as well. Cool. And there's some stuff for Randy Brecker coming up. You're a busy man. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it, it, there's some there's some stuff, but uh, you know I hope I answered that question about uh, as far as like giving advice to to drummers that want to play different styles, and, and it's it's a it's it's really it's it's a hard question for me to answer because it, it, I never. I never approached it from a, an analytical perspective. Right. You know? Well, I think that you answered it in, in, uh, maybe indirectly by saying, you know, you listen to all this stuff and, you know, my buddy, Brian Moore always said, Brian Frazier Moore, he always says, you know, you are what you eat. So, you know, all the stuff that you're listening to is the stuff that's going to come out in your playing. So, you know, what I got out of what you were saying is the reason why you learned how to play all these styles was because you were listening to all these styles and, and you were ingesting them and you were, and, you know, so it wasn't like you sat down and said, okay, now I'm going to learn jazz and now I'm going to learn rock or anything like that. It was just what naturally happened as a result of listening. So, you know, to me, the message was like, listen more and you'll really start to learn these styles and the nuances of it and, and learn how to play them. Right, right, and and um, and and know exactly know when to use certain things. You know, like I guess it's like learning, learn learning a you know different languages, mm-hmm. but they're you know, um, or or different dialects. You know, uh, um, I, I, I guess, and and it, and. Um, and just being open-minded, you know, it, 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 that, that's so important. You know, you have to like the songs. You have to like that music. Right. And if, if, if you connect to it, if there's anything about it that's connecting with you, if you're open enough and, and, and it does connect, then um, you, 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 understand, you understand what makes that do what it does mm-hmm. and then it's just a matter of okay can i execute that and can i make it feel that good you know can i make it feel like what it is that i liked about it in the first place right and that's when the sort of that's when the sort of technical stuff comes in like how to execute those things mm-hmm. um but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky question to to answer, but I, I hope I hope they get the point. Yeah, I I totally think that uh, you, that was the best way to answer it. Whether it was you know inadvertent or not, that was that totally makes sense to me. It's just you know you can't just sit down and just say okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be all analytical about it and learn it. And you got to listen to the stuff. You have to you know you got injustice just like anything else you know that you've been around for years and years and years exactly so yeah, yeah totally so now you, you were talking about you know advice and and teaching and you also you teach private lessons right yeah i started i started like uh at the end of last year teaching some some students 
Okay, so if anyone wants to get in con- in contact with you about that, should they just go to RodneyHolmes.com? Yes, they can go to RodneyHolmes.com, and they can contact me on the contact page. They can just send an email. Cool. Cool. Perfect. Well, Rodney, thank you for spending all this time chatting with me, man. I really, I really do appreciate it. It was great to to get the, all this insight from you. I know the listeners thoroughly enjoyed it as much as I did, and uh, so thank you. I appreciate you know you taking the time and everything that you do. No problem. It's my pleasure. And uh, yeah, I have a, anytime you have anything going on, man, let me know, and I will definitely let the audience know about it as well. Thanks. I'll do that. Awesome. Thank you again, man, and I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks, Rodney. Bye. So there you have it, Mr. Rodney Holmes. Be sure to check him out at RodneyHolmes.com. And for anything that we talked about during the podcast, if you want the links to all of that stuff, check out DrummersResource.com forward slash session 98. Check me out on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Drummers Resource, on Instagram at Drummers Resource, and on Twitter at Drummers R Source. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to check out some of the stuff that I did for Drum Channel at DrumChannel.com. There's some lessons on there and some other interviews as well. So head over to DrumChannel.com to check all that stuff out, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.